The Cultivating Place podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. For everyone who has made a one-time or recurring monthly donation, thank you. Without you, these civil gardening conversations that grow our world better would not be possible. We appreciate your support. With it, this podcast grows beautifully. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It is really and truly summer now. It should be the peak of the sound and movement of winged life in our gardens and parks, the fluttering of moths at white flowers, at the porches and streetlights each evening. Dragonflies, mosquitoes, bumblebees, and flowerflies should be dancing across your flowers and grasses by day. National Pollinator Week is June 20th to the 26th, and this week we're in conversation with Dr. Monica Egerer, pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich, sharing more about the importance of well-designed urban gardens and gardened spaces for pollinator support. Monica researches the ecology and management of production-oriented ecosystems in and around cities, and production-oriented ecosystems include gardens. Monica pursues an interdisciplinary research approach that analyzes connections between biodiversity, environmental and climate protection, ecosystem services, and social ecological issues in urban spaces. Monica, I am so pleased to be in conversation with you today. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. It's really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've introduced you in a very basic way. Can you please share with us maybe a little more depth and insight into your relationship with plants and the lives that are associated with plants at this point in your own life and career, Monica? Yeah. So as an interdisciplinary ecologist, I'm interested in what are the patterns and processes that are driving biodiversity and what we observe in the natural world, uh, particularly in urban areas and particularly more so in gardens, in our backyards and in our neighborhoods. And I'm interested, yeah, in what are the interactions driving pollination of plants or of the protection of plants from pests and how we can like conserve biodiversity in the gardens and spaces in and around our homes and in our neighborhoods. When I take off my science hat as just an everyday uh, person and also gardener, I'm um, interested in, yeah, growing plants and observing the insects that visit my plants and thinking about also how this is an important benefit uh, that I get from connecting to the natural world and how everyone can benefit from gardening if they are given the opportunity to. Take us back to your earliest influences. Who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom, first of all, advanced academic uh, training would be your path, and then putting that training to work, doing the research that you're doing. What got you from there to here on a personal level, especially, I think? Yeah. So I think I've had some very pivotal experiences in my life. Uh, The first is probably just as a child running around in my grandmother's uh, backyard. And she had a, a really big garden in actually in Germany that she cared for uh, after World War II. And that was much of the veg- fruits and vegetables that, you know, my um, father and his brothers grew up eating. And this kind of uh, form of gardening and security was really important for them at that time. And so as a kid, you know, I washed carrots with my grandma and made salad with her. And I think that like connection from 
growing um, vegetables in the ground all the way to then making a salad and eating it was a really important experience for me as a child to know the where food comes from and that it comes from real dirt and not just a grocery store shelf. Um, so I think that that was a, a pivotal experience for me to understand the, the importance and the hard work of what it takes to grow plants that we want to eat. <laughs> My dad also continues to garden today. And I think that that like family background of the importance of gardening, being able to feed your family was one personal interest in the role of gardens in people's lives. Another important experience for me uh, is that I come from southeast of Detroit. And when I was in high school and in college, the urban agriculture movement was uh, really starting to take foot in Detroit and was also this important way in which Detroiters could take back some autonomy of their food systems and be able to cultivate the land. And it became a political and social movement. What years are we talking? So this was as a young person just starting out in college. So I would say my early 20s. College, 2009, 2010-ish. One uh, way that I start to then see these connections between like people and plants and the importance of these, of like the people plant uh, relationships was when I did my uh, bachelor's thesis uh, as a college student on the Mariana Islands. And this was outside of the uh, world of urban agriculture, but was uh, looking at how this chili pepper uh, that is uh, dispersed by birds um, and eat and cultivated uh, in its wild form by people that live on the island um, had this really interesting connection and created this big uh, bright moment in my life where I noticed that, okay, you know, I was already interested in biodiversity and ecology, but kind of had seen like people on the outskirts um, of the picture. And this was a really pivotal experience for me to say, no, we need to know how people are valuing plants, how they're interacting with plants, how they are, yeah, harvesting plants uh, to understand the bigger picture. And right. so I think that was one important experience too that took me on the path of what I say an interdisciplinary ecologist. Yeah. 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 So uh, this project, I, I, I love that, this project on the Mariana Islands really, I mean, and I think peppers are one of those plants like corn and its wild relatives where you can see so clearly if someone shows you the role that humans have played in selecting the plant and bringing out the sort of edible and more human desired traits over time, but then also seeing the role of the bird in dispersal and probably germination uh, and breaking dormancy on those pepper seeds. Like all of a sudden you see these direct relationships that one, humans aren't passive, um, <laughs> but they can be active for good, not just for bad. And to see that in isolation allows you this clarity that you can then use as a lens on any plant you're looking at in interesting ways. But I love, I do like getting the, ch talking about chili peppers. I just want to say, yeah, I totally agree with you, right? Like also one of the things that we connect with people over food is like, okay, how spicy do you like your food? And like <laughs> chilies and peppers are these ways in which right. we um, right. like also, yeah, engage with food. So it's an engage with others. So yeah. And again, like some of our other like staple crops across the world, they also then are deeply embedded in mm. cultural identity and sacred uh, legacy and, and heritage, right? So they really hold the whole picture in a beautiful way. Where did you do your undergraduate work that, and was this in your undergraduate work that you got this great opportunity on the Mariana Islands? Exactly. Yeah. So that was as a, um, bachelor's, a, a bachelor's student in biology at Kalamazoo College. And um, so I, yeah, got one of my professors, Benny Girdler at Kalamazoo, said, hey, I met this amazing researcher in a, in a um, elevator at, uh, at the Ecological Society of America conference. And she was saying that she needs a student uh, to go out to the Mariana Islands. Would you be interested to go? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And so I went, uh, this, this rock star <laughs> ecologist in the elevators name was Haldra Rogers, and she leads the ecology of bird loss project. And so 
just a really quick summary is that this wow. project is looking at what are the impact of birds on the Mariana Islands when, or I guess in general in forest ecosystems. And the Mariana Islands are interesting because Guam is an island where the brown tree snake has functionally eradicated um, birds on the island. And so this means that we can do a really interesting experiment where we have islands with birds. So we have Mariana Islands with birds, and then we have Guam without birds. And we can look at, yes, birds are incredibly important for dispersing seeds throughout the forest. So how do these forests then look on, these, on an island without this important ecosystem function? So that was the project that I was working on, yeah. It, like I want to take a deep breath right there because what you are looking at is like the worst case scenario play out of what we are seeing in biodiversity loss right now. And, you know, that worst case eventuality leaves us without the, the controlled island that actually still has birds. It leaves us without that. So um, th that's grave and important to think about. The brown tree snake was an introduced species, I take it. Yeah, so I think it came over in like an airplane um, during the 1950s or so. I should know the year. I don't know exactly. And so, yeah, it came over and it, it um, yeah, it basically as a generalist species, uh, and the birds had no native, had no predator like this before. Um, and it just ate eggs. It ate adult birds It a lot. Yeah. And I think a lot of other things on the islands. And so it's been a huge problem, uh, for the ecology and the conservation of species on the island. So you go from there, from the University of Kalamazoo, you go off to where and what do you, like, how do you specialize in your studies from that point on? I mean, after that experience, I knew that I was interested in ecology, conservation, but also like this human dimension of conservation and social ecological interactions. But I was really just, I was also really interested in tropical ecosystems. And so I was thinking about, okay, what could be uh, interesting labs to join as far as a PhD? I was really interested in research. I think this experience on the Mariana Islands you know, I had a lot of freedom. I also made a lot of mistakes. I, you know, I was like, <laughs> I think this was such a, a it was just a, a, sh a, what is it called? These experiences that shape you as a young person, you know, riding around on the island by myself on a moped, like looking for chili peppers, talking to people. You, yeah, it was very important for me. And so I knew I wanted to go into research. And so I started looking at different labs and Haldra, who was my advisor on that project, she suggested um, Stacey Philpot, who was, who is also a tropical ecologist um, and she works in uh, shade coffee plantations in Mexico. And so I, you know, I looked at Stacy's labs uh, uh, website and was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. They're also looking at, you know, insect plant interactions and uh, conservation and in an, also in an agroecological system. And so now I was like, oh yeah, you know, I was always interested in sustainable food systems and, you know, this could be also a cool way to blend ecology and conservation and also food systems and agriculture. And so I wrote to Stacy, and she said, yeah, let's talk. Um, and when I talked with her, I was like telling her I'm really interested in her coffee work. And she said, hey, Monica, actually, I just got this uh, grant to do urban garden research. Would you be interested in that? <laughs> and I was like, urban gardens? That's like the... I mean, yeah, I know gardens, like I grew up in gardens, like I, yeah, I know that they are important, but like, are they ecosystems? Like, are they, or do they have in these? Yeah, I was kind of like confused and at the same time, like, okay, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it like that. I haven't thought about urban gardens as a research pathway. Uh, ending my time at Kalamazoo to, to starting and moving uh, across the country to California and started getting into the urban garden research and quickly was just like, wow, these systems are fascinating. Like with the lens of an ecologist, not a, you know, five-year-old kid running around, um, but instead of as, as a scientist and thinking of these as places where, 
They can be incredibly biodiverse. They're diverse in the plants that people are cultivating because people are coming from all different backgrounds and bringing those, those histories with them to their garden beds. And so we see this system emerge as incredibly heterogeneous, and this can uh, underlie many fascinating ecosystem processes uh, through, for example, plant-insect interactions. So that then got me also just to think of a garden as an ecosystem and also to think of the garden as a social ecological system, because these are very much managed by uh, people and people's values and beliefs underlie the decisions that they're making. And so I start to also to realize that, okay, this interest in social ecological systems can also be applied to these garden systems. This is Cultivating Place. It's National Pollinator Week, and we are speaking with Dr. Monica Egerer, pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich, who is sharing more about the importance of well-designed urban gardens for pollinator support. May every day be about sustaining the full scope of life and liveliness in our gardens. We'll be right back with Monica. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So in 2020, Dr. Egerer published a joint paper for Ecology and Society, summarizing some of her findings from work in the U.S. in 2017 regarding gardens, gardeners, and plant diversity richness. I will include the full link to this paper in the show notes on cultivatingplace.com this week. The team's findings are pretty phenomenal. One of them is that urban gardens managed with agroecological practices and higher plant diversity support a greater proportional biodiversity and may even support higher crop production too. It seems intuitive, doesn't it? But Monica and her team are demonstrating the extent of this intuitive truth, which is a catalyst for more just like it. They found that gender, region of origin of the gardener, time spent gardening, and gardener motivations, whether they be food or pleasure or mental health or physical exercise, all influenced plant richness and composition of a garden space. They specifically found that women plant more plant species overall than men tend to, especially more medicinal and ornamental flowering plants, and that individual gardeners motivated by nature connection tend to plant strongly different plant compositions in their gardens than gardeners with different motivations. So for instance, they might plant food crops and flower crops, but if they're motivated by a nature connection, they tend to have a really good diversity of plants specifically for incorporating wildlife into their garden experiences. A strong takeaway from her research over this past almost 10 years now is that, quote, assuring access to gardens for all groups of people, no matter their place of origin or their socioeconomic level, may in fact boost plant richness and support ecosystem services in urban spaces writ large. Wow, so that is pretty cool. Because it is apparent that the greater the access to gardens in urban spaces for all people, the greater the contribution of those urban gardens for truly green infrastructure in our cities. Green infrastructure in the form of gardens simultaneously support biodiversity conservation, support ecosystem services, and support human well-being. That is research and evidence well worth learning from and continuing to fund, my garden friends. It is up to us to help support such work 
and gardens in our own urban areas in all the ways we can think of to do that. So get involved and keep gardening. We're back now to our conversation with Dr. Monica Egerer, pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich. Her interdisciplinary research approach analyzes connections between biodiversity, environmental and climate protection, ecosystem services, and socio-ecological issues in urban spaces with a strong focus on the role of insects and plant biodiversity. As we come back, Monica shares more about her move to Stacy Philpott's lab at the University of California, Santa Cruz, looking at urban gardens as sociological and ecological ecosystems. So yeah, I spent then five years in Stacy's research group and in Santa Cruz. And yes, I mean, this is such an interesting region. Like, so we worked in 20 eight gardens over the course of those five years that I was there. We were focused on community gardens. So these are like community allotment gardens. So we either have these gardens that are managed, so individual households manage an individual plot or like an entire group collectively manages the area um, and divides up work tasks and makes planting decisions all together. So these kind of forms of community gardens. And the 28 gardens were distributed across the California Central Coast So all the way down to Monterey um, and Pacific Grove to San Jose uh, City Center. Um, And then dotted in Santa Cruz too, we we had gardens uh, in Watsonville and Salinas. And uh, so the gardens were distributed across across the coast. And the idea was to have gardens that are, you know, situated in different urban contexts so that we can ask questions around what you just mentioned, how does landscape fragmentation, how does, how does impervious surface and urbanization, uh, how does that influence uh, biodiversity of, for example, pollinators or our natural enemies uh, like, like ladybugs or parasitoid wasps uh, that protect our plants. So that's some of the context of these 28 gardens and they're all managed very differently by the different communities of folks that are working there. With just a general understanding of the demographics and the the landscape in that region, um, you know, this is a big yeah. growing region for agriculture, for horticulture, a lot of ornamental horticultural industry, um, you know, leaders mm-hmm. are down there uh, growing out plants for our home gardens, but also a lot of like fruit growers and avocado growers and you know, and you also have this really wide range of socioeconomic landscape that you go from very, very wealthy to, you know, for instance, uh, I've done a piece and people listening will have heard Homeless Garden Mm -hmm. Project in downtown Santa Cruz and their community garden. You know, there's a wide range of of these socio-ecological overlays that you were talking about. Yeah, this is such a fascinating region because... We would in mm-hmm. one day go from, you know, surf town, beach front vibe all the way into like Silicon Valley and like high rise buildings and planes are flying over you. And this is some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the state. And also, you know, working in uh, going then to also Watsonville and being surrounded by strawberry fields or lettuce fields and the food that's growing in these gardens is contributing to people's food security. It's not just a hobby. Um, it's, it's a form of, um, of self-provision and can, you know, especially during hard times, be very important to people. You know, so I think just the, these differences and motivations to garden and, and why people are out there cultivating the land stems from these different socio-demographics that are present in the region. Yeah. And so we have done some studies and Stacy wrote a really good paper uh, just last year that looks at how those different demographics influence plant composition in the gardens. Um, and so I encourage anyone to, to check that out uh, if you're interested in looking at how that plays out. I will put a link to that in the show notes today. Excellent. So, okay. Yeah. Back to you. 
And so you're here, you're there for five years, you're, you're asking all these questions and you're creating this whole new lens of yourself for layers of inquiry in your research. Take us back to where you are now, to Germany. Yeah. So um, after I was done, I was looking for new opportunities and uh, I got in touch with uh, a research group in Berlin at the Technical University of Berlin, and this was Ingo Kowarik's research group. And I was thinking about, you know, other places to go as it was like 2000, uh, when was it that I graduated? Yeah, 2018, 2019, when I started looking for jobs. And this was the time of, of Trump and kind of science was you know, it was kind of like tough to be an ecologist and try and get funding. <laughs> and so I was thinking, uh, thinking abroad, and it's always good to get international experiences. And so I reached out to the T to the TU Berlin um, through another colleague that had linked me up with with this group, and he recommended this colleague said, "Hey, Monica, this is a great group doing urban garden research. Uh, maybe you would fit in there." And they're just starting a pollinator project, and. One thing that I really liked during my PhD was doing a citizen science project. And so as I was brainstorming ideas of what to do for my postdoc and, and what to do next, I was like, okay, I know I want to do ecological research in gardens and continue this because I still have questions that I want to ask. But I also kind of, I, I really like the citizen science part and getting people involved in the in the research process, the, those that are gardening themselves and to, to have them engage because as you just mentioned too, gardeners are stewards of these ecosystems. So it's much more productive if we can work together. And so I saw citizen science as a pathway to do so. And so I pitched a project uh, with uh, Ingo Kowarik's lab in Berlin to um, have people measure pollination on their plants and pair that up with experiments on pollination and uh, pollinator observations in urban gardens in Berlin. Within a couple of months of applying, I got, I did an interview and I then got the notice that I got the job and with it had a week to decide. And, you know, I had a bunch of other job applications open and I was like, should I do this? Do I go to Berlin? I don't know. Like it was kind of terrified. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, then I was like, okay, well, you know, I, yeah, I did the envelope trick where like you, you stick, you have like two envelopes. One says yes, one says no, and you pick one up and uh, <laughs> the envelope said yes. And so I was like, all right, I got nothing to lose. Like I haven't heard back from the other jobs. I got to say yes. So I feel like the universe, the universe has been so clear with you on, <laughs> on, on like where you were supposed to be headed, Monica. It's great. Yeah. So, um, I got to Berlin and you know, kind of just hit the ground running. Like I was like, okay, I want to find gardens I want to work in. I was trying to get integrated into the lab, uh, the research group there to, and that was a little bit, it was definitely a culture shock. Uh, I think I was going to ask, the, yeah. even though the group is great. Um, I think, you know, Germans are still cautious and you still are an outsider. And I will say that the, I really just appreciate that the group just, and they only spoke German with me, which I think was really good because then I was, you know, it forced me to get better at my German and it also made me feel like I was a part of the team. And I think that was incredibly important for me as, as coming into a new environment um, that I was, even though I knew I was an outsider and I knew I had a lot to learn and a lot to prove um, to myself and also to others, uh, the fact that they did welcome me into the group, they did try and um, assimilate me into the, the research culture there, I think was really good. And so I started this, I was working on projects with other folks in the group and then also just starting to connect with guard, urban gardens, community gardens. So I was going to Prinzessening Garden, which is a famous community garden in, in Berlin. I was going to Himmelbeet, which is also a famous uh, garden in Berlin and just roaming around and getting to know people. And like the first like six months were super, super fun. And uh, then, yeah, I was getting ready to, to get hit the ground running with research in the spring. Um, we had set up the citizen science project. We were going to do all these workshops with gardeners and I was collaborating with the museum for Naturkunde or the Natural History Museum in Berlin, who are experts in citizen science. And then COVID happened. And all of this stuff about like going to the gardens, connecting with gardeners, doing workshops with many, many people. This was April 2020 that we had planned to do all this was like a no-go. 
And that made that like put me into actually like a really big depression. And that's something that I do like to talk about now because I think it's, you know, a lot of um, scientists have, have, I think have had a tough time with, with uh, the pandemic and being in a lockdown when, you know, you do feel really isolated. And I think for me, it's very important to feel like I'm part of a, of a group and of a community. Um, and that is a huge motivation for my work and the way that I lead my research group today. Um, and so, yeah, so I was really bummed uh, and we then were like, you know, okay, well, what's the alternative? we put together digital workshops. So we then turned the whole thing around and turned our in-person uh, workshops into um, digital videos and did then one-to-one workshops with masks with, with folks and made it happen the best that we could and then carried out the ecological research over the course of the summer of 2020. So you got going pretty fast. Great. Okay. I got to Berlin in the fall of 2019 and then um, was doing then research in 2020 in Berlin in 18 community gardens. And wow. um, this was then with uh, with folks from or scientists from the TU Berlin. At the same time, then I'd gotten this call that, you know, this job for me in Munich was um, offered. And, you know, for a assistant professor for urban productive ecosystems. So there was like this kind of like <laughs> little secret that as, yeah, early in the fall of 2019, when I had arrived in Berlin, I also had an interview for a job in at the TOM at the T- Technical University of Munich. And I did the interview, kind of brushed it off. I was like, I'm never going to get this. They're never going to hire an American who is, you know, 29, 28 years old. Like, there's right. no way. So I just kind of like brushed it off and like didn't, you know, I did the interview. It was great. I had an amazing time. I thought all the colleagues there were, um, um, were, were very sweet. And, but yeah, I just thought that it wasn't going to happen. I was like, my, I'm trying to settle into Berlin. Like, this is my focus now. And then, yeah, I got this call um, in the spring of 2020 that I had this job offer. And um, I, if I took it, I would be then moving to Munich. Uh, so that was, yeah, very, I think also a very uh, tricky process for me to navigate. Um, also feeling like I was just settling into Berlin and I was just settling into the research group. And yeah, I think that was very hard for me to break it to the research group that I was offered another job and I couldn't say no to it because it was exactly around things that I was passionate about, urban agriculture, biodiversity, urban ecology, and social ecological systems. That then meant that I moved to Munich and specifically to Freising, which is a town just outside of Munich where the university has all of its life science departments and have then been there since since then, uh, leading this research group called Urban Productive Ecosystems. Were you able to get any research accomplished in Berlin or were you really just able to like get it started in motion so that you had that learning curve, um, you know, to, to work with when you then went to Munich uh, or were you able to collect any research and data from Berlin? Yeah, so we did actually get pretty good data. So we, despite all everything we did, and there's going to be, there is one paper out that's recently um, been published about the plants in the gardens in Berlin. And that's also something I would recommend for the readers uh, that we've called land sharing um, and how urban gardens can be these hotspots of plant biodiversity in cities. And we can have these synergies between um, wild plants and cultivated plants in, in these gardens. And then also we did get good uh, bee data. So those those will be studies that we're working on publishing soon. Okay. First of all, let's unpack the title of your faculty position there. You know, ecologist is an interdisciplinary phrase and field. It it is bringing together all of the different, um, you know, biological and life sciences and trying to see how they work together and play out on the land. And so, but it's interesting to me that we also as humans need to then like pull out two or three frames in that lens and say, yes, but they don't just interact with each other. They also are interdisciplinary with all of these other fields of thought or schools of thought, like you were saying, uh, you know, agroecology, 
socio, you know, and economic uh, ecology. And so I, I just think that's, it's interesting that there is this need to add yet another layer of interdisciplinary onto an interdisciplinary field for us to think about it in those biggest ways. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, maybe it's a term that doesn't need to be added because ecology is very interdisciplinary. Um, I think the reason why I did use that is because I do social science in our research and yeah, why I think that that's an important, that is an important distinction. It is. It is many. Yeah. Many ecologists may not. And I think it speaks to our human tendency to just try and look at things in separation and isolation instead of in the, because it's sometimes easier. Like you can understand the whole better if you understand the parts, but sometimes we're so focused on the parts, we forget the whole. So what are some of the primary questions you are asking in this work? And when you say a production-based environment, what do you mean exactly? Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the second question. Um, So the title of the professorship is because it should be around like agriculture, some like some of the research should take part in agricultural systems or horticultural systems. So around food production, and so that's why the title, and I did not necessarily, I did not pick the, <laughs> pick the name of the professorship, but it was, yeah, it was basically not just urban ecosystems, but also urban productive ecosystems in the sense that these are systems that have food production involved in them. And so, you know, I, when I saw that job title, I said, okay, well, like urban gardens, <laughs> can I pitch that as, as like my, one of my expertises now after many years of working in these systems? And so some of the questions that um, we are, or I am asking is, you know, what are these garden management factors that drive differences in biodiversity where we use groups like pollinators or natural enemies um, as our organisms of focus Uh, because these are incredibly important for ecosystem functions like pollination or pest control or decomposition, um, et cetera, many different things in in gardens. And um, yeah, so what are management factors? So is it plant diversity and crop diversity or wild plant diversity, whether plants are flowering or not? Um, Is there trees and are like longstanding vegetation an important management factor? Is the ground cover an important management factor? So what are these different management factors and interactions among management factors that may drive differences in biodiversity? And ultimately these differences in things like pollination or pest control or decomposition. Um, So that's one, I think, very big question. And then we're also interested in things like the environment. So how does microclimate, um, how does the the surrounding landscape context and imperviousness uh, impact biodiversity, but also how does it impact microclimate regulation? Because this is also really important uh, when it comes to biodiversity, but also of plant production. So, I mean, in cities, they can be several degrees hotter than their rural counter than their rural counterparts. And so, is the urban heat island allowing um, or prohibiting uh, certain plants to grow, or is it allowing plants to grow? And what may be also new opportunities for plant production, um, but what may be uh, dangers to to or inhibitors of crop production? So, those are just. I guess some some big questions. And then I guess like I'll mention the third is, yeah, how do social values and people's motivations underlie these management decisions? And how can people be involved in the research process? And I think that this gets at like this citizen science aspect is uh, working to transform these garden landscapes for biodiversity, for ecosystem um, functions and services with and for people. This is Cultivating Place. It's National Pollinator Week, and we're speaking this week with Dr. Monica Egerer, pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich, sharing more about the importance of urban gardens for pollinator support. With the EU and Germany specifically at the epicenter of invaluable research over these past 10 years into our global decline in insect life, 
it's not surprising that this would also be the area of the world at the forefront of research into how to help offset such losses with proactive, positive garden culture. We'll be right back with Monica. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I've recently been immersed in a long-term project that you're going to hear a lot more about in the coming months. But for this project, I had to spend some time researching the Superfund sites across the U.S. Those sites, present in literally every state in our nation, so poisoned by human industry, exploitation, and neglect that they cannot repair themselves. And we cannot allow human life near them until we remediate the problem we caused. This was a profoundly affecting research focus for me. With the constant stress of knowing that we as humans often get life on earth wrong, and not just a little wrong, but really hardcore, very, very wrong, wreaking havoc on the lives of bats, bears, bees, borderlands, forests, rivers, ocean life, even the life of ice in the Arctic. To be in conversation with a 30-something Monica Egerer about her research verifying and quantifying how gardens which are managed agroecologically, meaning with both production and ecological care in mind, especially gardens with even a little wildness in them, are significant contributors to plant biodiversity and insect biodiversity support, well... That was potent antidote to my research into Superfund sites. We can get it really wrong, but I'll tell you what, we can get it really right too. And I like that wild bit. I like the idea of a dead log or dead twigs and a little stack or a little weediness and a little seediness as being proxy or analogs for what we think of as wild. Okay, it's not the back country at Yosemite, but this log or this stretch of seed heads or a handful of native plants not over-controlled, that is a little bit of wild possible in all of our gardens. Gary Nabhan wrote something really beautiful along the lines of the prime result of breeding all the wild out of anything turkeys, echinacea, gardens, us as humans. The prime outcome is that that organism, no matter if it's the turkey or the human, no longer has appropriate instinctual responses to the world around them. Take all the wild out and we actually don't know how to survive. We no longer know how to make basic decisions in the best interest of our own survival. The turkeys can't stand on their own two legs. The overbred echinacea can't stand on its own stem. And we, as humans, get it wrong. But maybe, maybe as we work on rewilding our gardens in even small ways, we work on the rewilding of us too. That is an interdisciplinary field I am happy to sit in, and I am happy to meet you there.
We're back now to our Pollinator Week conversation with Dr. Monica Egerer, pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich. As we come back, Monica shares more about her collaborative research findings, specifically into the importance of thinking of our gardens as habitats. It sounds like common sense, but is still not common practice. But it certainly could be, and that's what we're talking about. The collaborative research that I've done over the past few years from California all the way to now to Munich, it, one is that that management factors affect different yeah, organisms differently. <laughs> so I think one thing that we are uh, constantly looking at is like a trade-off of which management factors may lead to different biodiversity outcomes. So maybe mulch uh, ground cover is really good for spiders uh, because they like to like hide in the mulch and they can attack their prey. And so it might be good for some natural enemies. Um, but mulch is actually not good for bees that like to um, bury in the in the ground and build their nests. Some bees need bare soil, uh, whereas leaving bare soil or having bare soil may also like lead to water loss and also may have some negative aspects when it comes to like water retention. So we see these really interesting like trade-offs and synergies among management factors. But we also find that, you know, things like plant diversity are incredibly important. I think that this is like a, the diversification of a garden is uh, through plant management as one of the things that we can encourage. We can plant wild plants among our cultivated plants and we can see synergies across different organism groups. Can you give us an example of that like you did with the spiders and the bees? Because I think that is really interesting, that synergy between the cultivated and the wild or native plants of your area. And I think it's one of the things that's being hammered into gardeners here is this real importance to incorporate native plants into our landscapes if we want to increase biodiversity and be, uh, you know, a support mechanism for our world. But to hear that there are synergies between the two groups is interesting. Yeah. I mean, one interesting result that we got from the Berlin data was that basically more functionally diverse plant communities in the gardens lead to more functionally diverse bee communities in the gardens. And I think that that's uh, a really interesting outcome that says like through having diverse plant communities, both wild and cultivated plants, and we see that garden, yeah, that we have this also a, a nice positive relationship between these gardens with um, high cultivated plant diversity also have high wild plant diversity. Uh, so we can see that, you know, gardens can be very biodiverse, uh, not just in the cultivated plants, but also uh, creating shared spaces for, for wild or native plants. And there's other benefits for other um, groups like uh, ladybugs or like parasitoid wasps that also benefit um, from having more um, or higher plant diversity and these plants that are flowering, especially. Yeah, I think that that's a, a one example. And um, yeah, I think another example is that like having maybe yeah having more wild plants, but also just having more wildness in a garden is good. So we looked in Berlin at like the dead wood that was around in gardens and also found that more dead wood uh, promoted more diverse bee communities. And I think that this is, yeah, maybe dead wood is like a proxy for wildness and we can beget more biodiversity if we have more wildness in our gardens. Yeah, because this is kind of like a novel resource in urban areas. We there's this conflict often between wildness and aesthetics, and you know why we still have unfortunately many herbicides and pesticides in our underneath our kitchen counters. I think especially in the U.S. Um, and this is yeah, we need to let we need to make space for wildness in our backyards and in our city landscapes and create these niches for biodiversity also to thrive. When you come to, for instance, I mean, you, you talked about how there were these inverse correlations between certain management techniques and biodiversity. When you look at what kind of diversity of insects a, an urban garden can support, like what kind of level of support were you seeing? Were you impressed with the numbers of maybe, you know, distinct species of bees or predators or flies or? Um, I think, that, yeah, that's a good question. I think overall in general, it is relatively surprising the diversity that we see in some gardens, especially those that are just like on concrete slabs, like on a parking lot 
in the middle of a built up area. Uh, we have this garden and that we work that we still work in in Berlin. And it's just, it blows my mind, the species richness that we find there of both of, especially of, of, of bees. And we actually found a species that was never documented in Berlin before. And we kind of just like are scratching our heads about like, okay, why is this species showing up in this garden? That's just like, you know, in the middle of a construction zone and, and um, just this garden is just like on concrete slabs and raised is just raised beds, but it does have a lot of perennial long-standing vegetation. And the garden is doing a, a relatively good job of maintaining high plant diversity and flowering plant diversity. And so this is, yeah, something that, you know, I think these gardens just offer so many, so a lot more room for novel uh, questions and novel findings about understanding ecosystems in our city landscapes. And I guess one other interesting research that, yeah, topic that I've, that I'll mentioned briefly is is the is the presence of toxic plants in gardens so i think that this is also maybe like a potential trade-off right like we may be um, preserving or conserving um, wild plants but actually some of those plants may be toxic or poison i guess i should say poisonous and uh this also creates this kind of like conflict between like biodiversity conservation um, but also human use if kids are running around in these gardens and eating plants that you may or may not know are are poisonous or not um so we have a student right now that is looking at uh, the distribution of these poisonous plants in the gardens and we're starting to think about how we can make recommendations to gardens about uh you know having signs or um, informing uh, the gardeners that these plants um, are present in their in their gardens. I know I have toxic plants in my garden, but I also know that it is relatively unlikely that m my children would have run around and eaten a plant that I didn't teach them to eat. Um, and so I'm wondering like what the prevalence is of like death by toxic plant on accident. I'm not trying to be glib. The other question that I want to follow up on with you, and, and I think this question of the toxic plants, um, you know, being in our gardens, maybe, you know, I can think of like monkshood or foxglove would be one that would be prevalent here in our, our home gardens um, because they have a longstanding cultural, um, you know, kind of affection in cottage garden plants or, you know, cutting gardens. Um, and that is the socioeconomic values being um, an indicator of what is happening in the garden. Can you talk about anything you have found in that arena? I think that we have found like these, yeah, we've definitely found differences in motivations and socioeconomics in the gardens and thinking about how that, um, yeah, may drive plant communities. I think that we had those folks that were like, more hobby gardeners, and those are coming from um, higher economic status, were more likely to plant ornamentals. And um, those that are of lower socioeconomic status are more likely to plant crops. <laughs> so this is kind of like a basic relationship that we'd probably hypothesize to find. And we have confirmed that in, in our research. We've also found that women are incredibly important as like harborers of biodiversity. And this is often because they're the ones that are planting these native plants. And in our work in California, and this is referencing this paper that I also mentioned by Stacy, is uh, that, yeah, that women were, there was these gender differences between women and men and the plant that they, plants that they are growing or the richness of plants in their garden beds. Was there an associated uh, relationship between the level of biodiversity supported in that garden, specifically in insect and or bird life, as a result of them being either, you know, crops or ornamentals, or was there sort of a sweet spot of a combination of the two? It depends on what the form of biodiversity is. I think when it comes to plants, I'm trying to think of at the garden level, because I mean, yeah, if you have these like differences and some plots are maintained production-based, some are very diverse um, that and have a lot of wild plants and you are getting like within the whole entire garden landscape, you're getting both of these, these types of land use and that would then amount to more diversity um, within the entire garden. And that's where we see these like this positive relationship between the number of pr um, productive or cultivated plants and the number of, of wild plants. So if you had, you know, I don't know, two or three recommendations for the gardeners out there listening on best practices 
knowing that, you know, there's some complexity and nuance there, but what are the two or three things they can do to up the biodiversity in insect and birds or other wildlife that their garden is supporting? What would those recommendations be, Monica? The first is to, I mean, the one basic recommendation is like to think of your garden as a habitat and to think about how you can make new niches within the garden landscape. I think one of them is very important is to diversify plants and to plant native wild flowering plants. I think that this is incredibly important, Um, but it's not just flowers. We also need to think about nesting resources. So species have different life cycles and many of them need um, different structures to nest in um, from bees, but also to birds. Uh, And so we can think about leaving dead wood. (laughs) We can think about having, uh, creating some sort of sand, uh, sand hill uh, for sand uh, or bees that nest in the sand or we can create places where cavity nesting um, species could be able to nest. Uh, And also water is very important. Maybe in a Mediterranean landscape, this could be difficult, uh, but if you live in Uh, you know, in Germany, for example, uh, yeah, having like a pond or some sort of like near natural uh, water body, if you can create that, that is an incredible resource for a lot of forms of biodiversity. You know, this is kind of a takeaway I'm hearing from everything you're saying, which is simply pay attention that it's not ever all or are all one thing and not anything else. It's, you know, that you do need some dry wood uh, or dead wood or decomposing leaves, as we're hearing um, in terms of, you know, the microorganisms underneath our oaks and other trees. But, you know, but you also need some open space uh, of dirt or sand for these bees. And so we need a little bit of everything and a little bit more of everything that we can get uh, to support the most diversity, which intuitively makes sense, but it isn't necessarily how we have gardened or how we were trained to garden, um, you know, since the 1950s. So... Is there anything you would like to add? Just to reiterate that uh, gardeners are are stewards or can be stewards and uh, to see your garden also as a habitat and to think about ways that you could take um, ownership as, as a steward of biodiversity through making small changes. And I like the point that you just made about um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a silver bullet, but there's different ways in which you could create habitat um, based on the, the context that you're in and what resources you may have. I think going forward, one really big next step is that we are going to be entering uh, the next phase of our research where we will be based on um, evidence that we've gathered from now gardens in Berlin and in Munich. We are going forward to work with gardeners to create uh, different, the German word is Maßnahmen, I guess the English word I always forget, but like interventions. Uh, it doesn't sound as maybe nice as, I don't know if it's, it sounds a little extreme, uh, but basically making like conservation interventions in these gardens that we des- co-create uh, with, with gardeners and co-implement with gardeners so that they're a part of this process. And also that we're implementing or making suggestions uh, based on their own wishes and capabilities. So I'm really excited for this part of the project that will start um, next year and it'll be nice because then we are doing you know ecology with or in uh in and for and with uh cities and uh this is an important part of doing ecological research in urban landscapes is that we're doing research that is co-created by uh the the residents that are living in these areas and so i'm excited i'm excited for that so stay tuned Okay, great. Oh, well, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to learn about your energetic and enthusiastic research. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Dr. Monica Egerer is a pollination ecologist at the Technical University of Munich. She shared with us today more about her research over the past 10 years into the importance of well-designed urban garden spaces for pollinator support and plant diversity. 
all of her research is pointing to the fact that this interdisciplinary research is proving there are direct correlations between the biodiversity of gardens and the biodiversity and health of wildlife, of air, of water, and of human health and well-being, all of which improve the outlook on climate change. Join us again next week when we're in conversation with Kay Green, founder of Hudson Valley Seed, a values-based seed company focused on biodiversity and storytelling, situated in New York's Hudson Valley. He'll share more about the depth and breadth of the seed world in our world, just in time for our mid-summer successional sowings. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. For more information and great images of urban garden spaces rich with diversity and pollinator life support, head on over to cultivatingplace.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with technical and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.